Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. This week, why pregnant women might be at a higher risk of car crashes, a new astronomy system that can actually see planets orbiting distant stars, and why octopuses don't tie themselves up in knots. Plus, we look at how bacteria and fungi can help us to clean up our act by removing toxic chemicals from soils, attacking oil spills, and even cleaning up mining waste. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Pregnancy is arguably one of the most exciting, but potentially also one of the most dangerous times in a woman's life. But it's not just the threat to her health that comes from the physical demands of having a baby. Because it turns out that women in the middle parts of their pregnancies, these are the so-called second trimesters, are much more likely to be involved in life-threatening car accidents. In fact, according to a new study looking at over half a million Canadian women, the risk of ending up seriously injured in hospital following a collision can be over 40% higher during pregnancy. Don Redelmeyer from the University of Toronto led the study. Pregnant women often ask me the strangest questions about scuba diving, roller coasters, airline flights, and even grizzly bear attacks. They almost never ask me about the everyday risks. I was never once asked about road safety, despite it being a much larger risk. So you were interested in addressing the fact that there is very, very little data actually looking at whether being pregnant does affect your road safety. Absolutely right. Standard prenatal care guidelines are virtually silent about the importance of road safety, and that includes guidelines in the United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, and Canada. And we thought that that was sort of a major omission in the existing medical literature. So what did you do to try to fill that gap? How did you approach that? We identified every woman in Ontario, Canada, who gave birth during a five-year span. And we tracked each person for any emergency department visit related to a road crash that occurred either before, during, or after pregnancy. So that amounts to a sample size of over half a million women and about 8,000 life-threatening motor vehicle crashes. And that study design inevitably means that because you've got a person who is pregnant when they're having a crash at some points and not pregnant and they might be having a crash, you can directly compare their vehicle accident risk when they are and aren't pregnant. Exactly right, Chris. It's a huge strength of the study in that each individual serves as their own control and thereby we remove confounding from genetics or personality education, lifestyle, or all sorts of other unmeasured factors that could contribute to roadway risks. So when you do the comparison and ask, is someone more likely to have a crash when they're pregnant compared with when they're not, what trends emerge? Our largest single finding was that we found that the second trimester of pregnancy led to a 42% increase in the risk of a serious motor vehicle crash compared to the very same months for the very same person before they were pregnant. Do you have any idea as to why you should see that profound escalation in risk? And are the numbers big enough to support it? Is that a statistically and clinically significant finding? It's an extraordinarily strong finding from a statistical point of view. It's far beyond 
any explanation related to random chance. One possible theory is that the increase in risk relates to a combination of fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, nausea, distraction, and excitement that are all parts of a normal pregnancy and yet could contribute to driver error. Why do you think there is that hot spot in the second trimester of pregnancy? Why not right at the beginning, or people might think more obviously, at the end of pregnancy when people are really quite encumbered by, in some cases, a very big belly, in some cases with twins in there? I think that the accentuation in the middle trimester occurs because that's when women are usually feeling at their best. That's when they are trying to make up for lost time in the first trimester as well as get everything done possible before the baby comes so that there's a lot of rushing around and there's also potentially a false sense of security in the middle months that leads individuals to potentially lower their guard. And when you look at the sorts of accidents that the women are involved in, is there any sort of blame attributed there? Can you see whether they're no claim or it's that person's fault, it was the other person's fault, who is causing these accidents? We don't do any at-fault analysis. So it might be that pregnancy merely impairs a woman's ability to avoid a motor vehicle collision that was set up by somebody else. It's interesting because people have looked at people's cognitive performance during pregnancy. They've even looked at people's driving performance, albeit using a simulator during pregnancy, and they haven't seen these trends or something that would produce such a big increase in risk that you see. So how do you account for that? The past literature about baby brain is really quite controversial, Chris. In community surveys, about 50% of women will describe intermittent episodes of forgetfulness where they misplace their wallet or they forget about an important appointment. And yet most laboratory studies have not been able to replicate large changes in psychology performance. A limitation of those data, though, is that they're often based on small samples of individuals engaged in artificial tasks and sort of hypothetical risks. So that the strength of our study is we look at real-world driving over an enormous population without any selection bias. Do you think that what you're seeing on the roads could be a proxy for a more general phenomenon? Do you think that there could be more general advice given to women in the second trimester of their pregnancy that they are more likely to have other sorts of lapses or, or accidents and therefore they need to be more comprehensively careful? We looked at that pretty carefully in terms of involvement as pedestrians and we didn't find any increase in risk. We didn't find any increase in falls or poisonings or burn incidents. So instead, the increase in risk is solely isolated to high-speed traffic where a small lapse of attention, one-tenth of a second, could lead to irreparable consequences. Don Redelmeyer from the University of Toronto, and that study was published this week in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Cat. And staying with pregnancy and also staying in Toronto, a new blood test developed there could help women at risk of giving birth prematurely. 
Here in the UK, around seven in every hundred births is premature, happening before 37 weeks of pregnancy. Happily for mums and their babies, medical advances have brought big changes in survival and long-term outcomes for these tiny tots. But it's still difficult to tell whether a woman having early contractions is just having a false alarm or is actually about to go into labour and needs urgent treatments such as steroids to help the baby's premature lungs. Now, Stephen Lai and Jan Heng at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto have developed a test that uses the levels of gene activity, that's messenger RNA or mRNA, to spot women who are about to deliver early by looking for genes linked to inflammation, which is part of the natural birth process. But what are the limitations of the current tests for early delivery? Stephen Lai. Some of them rely on clinical parameters, uh, most notably the uterine contractions, the length of the cervix, how open the cervix is. And there are some biochemical tests. Together, those tests are reasonably good at telling which women will not deliver, but they're not very good at telling which women will actually deliver within the next 48 hours. And so they're not really good at selecting the women that you really need to treat. Jan, can you tell me a bit about the kind of experiments that you were doing to try and solve some of the problems here? What we did was we collected blood samples from these women that admitted into the hospital with threatened preterm labor. We extracted the blood samples to get their messenger RNA. And with that, we applied the mRNA to microarray chips, which are tiny chips with DNA probes that reflects the whole human genome. Uh, using that chip, we can screen changes and um, differential expression of genes in the maternal blood that's associated with impending labour. So you're basically looking for genes that are switched on or switched off when a woman is definitely going to go into labour? Exactly. What sort of things did you find? So we found that these genes were associated with inflammation, which is expected because we know that labour is an inflammatory process. It is part of the natural progression of labor, whether the late woman gives birth at term or preterm. What we found was that when women go into preterm labor, their labor process is also inflammatory response. So the genes gave us an indication that inflammation was occurring in women who were about to deliver. And it also gave us information about um, high activity, that there were more genes being transcribed uh, with impending labor. And how many women were you actually looking at? Did you find the same pattern of genes in all of the ones that were definitely going to go and give birth? We collected these samples from Australia. The study had 154 women. And out of 154, uh, 48 of these women went and delivered a premature baby within 48 hours. And did they all show the same patterns of gene activity? How, how reliable is this, you know, if you were going to develop it into a test? From our study, our tests can correctly identify 7 out of 10 women that will deliver a baby within 48 hours, which is better performing than the current test. And the advantage of our test is that it can be performed on most women compared to fetopyronectin because a lot of women are ineligible for it. Stephen, tell me about the next steps for this research. You've tested it on around about 150 women. What next? Uh, This study was done in collaboration with Dr. Craig Pennell in Perth, Western Australia. And so now what we're doing is collecting a similar set of samples here in Toronto just to make sure that the signature for Perth women is the same as the signature for Toronto women. And then we hope to 
take that to a number of centres around the world, including the UK. Following that, it's really starting to work on the commercialisation of this to sort of turn it into a diagnostic test. How soon would you like to see this being a test that could potentially be really beneficial for mothers and their babies? You know, I would hope within three to five years, if everything goes well, we will have something that is ready for the market. That's Professor Stephen Lai and Dr Jan Heng from the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and also with me, Chris Smith. Turkey has reported its worst ever mining disaster following an explosion and a fire in a mine in Soma and this has claimed the lives of nearly 300 people so far. But why are explosions such a big risk when we go mining? Dave Ansell and Kate Lamble have your quickfire science. Coal is produced when organic matter, normally plants from swamps or forests, gets buried and then squashed and heated over millions of years. This causes the organic matter to break down. Elements like hydrogen and oxygen are driven off as various gases, leaving the carbon which forms coal. These gases can be trapped in pockets in the coal, but millions of years later, as the mining process splits the rocks apart, gases can be released once again. These gases can include carbon dioxide, the poisonous gas hydrogen sulphide and methane, also known as natural gas, which can explode when mixed with air. Methane used to be known as fire damp and was particularly dangerous for miners in the 18th and early 19th centuries, when the only source of light was from candles, which could ignite the gas. Miners used to use canaries and other small birds to detect asphyxiating and poisonous gases as they would succumb before humans were affected but methane could reach explosive levels without affecting a canary. To solve this problem, the British chemist Sir Humphrey Davy invented a safety lamp after he discovered that a flame wouldn't pass through a fine metal grill. This meant it was possible to burn a candle in a metal gauze tube without igniting any gas outside. Davy also found that the flame would change colour and shape depending on the gases in the atmosphere, so you could detect a dangerous situation. Even the coal itself can be dangerous to miners because if coal dust is fine enough, it will burn very quickly and effectively explode. Any explosions in mines can also make the environment more difficult for humans to breathe because the limited oxygen is consumed. Even more dangerous is the carbon monoxide produced by burning fuel without enough oxygen. This binds to the haemoglobin in red blood cells and prevents your blood from transporting oxygen. In 1907, in the US, over 3,200 people were killed mining about 2 billion tonnes of coal. However, electric light, ventilation, gas sensors and modern safety equipment has made coal mining far safer than it once was. So in the US in 2012, only 35 people were killed, producing about 600 million tonnes. However, the safety record in other countries has some catching up to do. In the same year in China, over 1,300 people were killed, mining about 2.8 billion tonnes of coal. Dave Ansell and Kate Lamble there. And you can get hold of all our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. This week, astronomers announced that they now have a powerful new toy to play with, a system called the Gemini Planet Imager, which is enabling them to actually see planets, known as exoplanets, which are in orbit around other stars outside our own solar system. Scott Thomas is an astronomer from Cambridge University, and he told me more about the Gemini project. Extrasolar planets can be spotted in a few different ways. 
The one that's been the most successful is called the transit method. Transit being like, you might have heard of the transit of Venus when Venus passed between us and our sun. Well, this is a similar sort of thing. We look at another star and we wait for the planet orbiting that star to pass in front of the star. And when that happens, the light from the star dims ever so slightly, just a tiny amount, 1%, 2% we're talking about. And so that's how we know that something's moved in front of the star, how we know there's a planet around it. So this transit method has been very successful, and there's a spacecraft called Kepler, which up until it failed quite recently, detected possibly thousands of potential planets around other stars. There are other methods as well. There's the radial velocity method, which is where you watch a star, and you see if it wobbles very slightly due to the gravitational influence of the planets moving around it. And I suppose another constraint of these sorts of studies is that they tell us that a planet is there. We can infer from either the way the light changes or the way the, the star wobbles a bit about what the planet must be in terms of its size and what it's therefore made of. But actually, we can't physically see it, can we? Exactly. And when people hear about the way the planets are discovered, I mean, the first thing you would think is, oh, we see it on the sky. But that's just not the case. However, the Gemini planet Imager are actually able to directly see the planets. So they're able to look at the sky, look at a star, and produce an image with a star in the middle and a little spot next to it. And that little spot is the planet. Is the difficulty that the star you're looking at is a billion times brighter than the planet? That is one of the difficulties, definitely. So this instrument uses what's called a coronagraph, and a coronagraph is basically when you block out the light from the star. You put not quite a disc of paper, but uh, you put something over the image of the star to leave only the space and the planet around it. Sounds pretty easy. Why is this a paper published in an international journal this week? Well, because there's a lot of engineering that goes into this. In fact, the issue of the star being a billion times brighter than the planet is not the only one. In order to be able to see the planet, the distance from the star we're talking about here is what we call an arc second. An arc second being a very tiny unit of measurement, uh, one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. And I think in order to see a planet at that distance from a star, it's like trying to see a human here, perhaps, at the end of a football field. So you're dealing with very tiny distances. At these distances, we have trouble with things like atmospheric turbulence. So any sort of heat, any sort of cloud, anything that's going to distort the air between us on the ground and space where we're looking, that's going to make it difficult to separate the planet from the star. So with that in mind, where is the Gemini platform? The Gemini instrument is on a telescope in Chile because the high deserts there mean you get a location that's very cloud-free, very clear atmosphere. In fact, it's on a telescope that was already there. I think this is an important distinction to make because when we build a telescope, it's a significant investment in money, engineering, and so we want these things to be like Swiss army knives. We want them to do as much as possible so we'll build a telescope, but we'll make it capable of having several different bits that can be tacked onto the back. It's like if you had a digital camera and you could leave the lens in place, take off the back and replace it with a new camera. So this new camera in this case is the Gemini Planet Imager. And what is it delivering? They've turned it on this week. What does it look like it's going to do? The press release this week is about an image that they've taken of a system called Beta Pick. A beta pick is a star. The beta means it's the second brightest star in the uh, Pictoris constellation. Beta pick has a disk around it. 
And in this disk, there is a planet called Beta Pick B, little b, because we name planets with letters like A and B, because we're very imaginative as astronomers. And the team behind the Gemini Planet Imager turned on the Gemini Planet Imager, they pointed it at Beta Pick, and within 60 seconds, they had an image of this planet. So that's really a pretty astounding sensitivity. And what will being able to see these planets add to what we can currently learn about them just by using existing techniques? If you can see a planet directly, you can take a spectrum of it. And that means that you can split up the light coming from it into all its component wavelengths, all its component colours. And then using that, you can derive some information about what's in the atmosphere. Is there water? Is there oxygen? Hydrogen? Helium? We see lines in the atmosphere, in the spectrum, that tell us about this. And this is really important because we want to know what these planets are made of. We want to understand something about their chemistry, about how they've formed, and uh, hopefully tie it back perhaps to our solar system as well. Scott Thomas, who's an astronomer at Cambridge University, he was talking to me about the new Gemini Planet Imager, the first results from which were just published in the journal PNAS. And while Gemini is scanning the skies over the southern hemisphere, there is an equivalent initiative called Project 1640 in which Cambridge is involved and that's scanning the skies over the northern hemisphere. Cat. Now finally, have you ever wondered how octopuses don't end up tying their arms in knots? Well, Guy Levy at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem thinks he's found the answer. It's a mysterious chemical in their skin. It might seem a little weird in the beginning when I'm asking such a question because our arms never interfere with each other and it seems natural for us. But it has to be understood that the unique morphology and structure of the octopus arms being so flexible and with the ability to deform at any point along their length limits the ability of the octopus to understand and know their exact position. On one hand, we have all of this that the octopus is not aware of the exact position of its arms. It cannot see them all the time. And on the other hand, it has these hundreds of suckers along each arm that have the reflexing tendency to attach to anything. So you have all these arms going everywhere. The octopus doesn't know exactly where they are. They're covered with suckers that will grab anything. How did you go about investigating how the octopus doesn't tie itself in a knot? So it has to be said that an octopus arm is partially autonomic. That means that an amputated octopus arm, if it's a freshly amputated octopus arm, will continue to live for more than an hour after amputation. And in this time, it will behave. It will grab items. And what we did is we tried to put two amputated arms in the same dish. And we saw that they don't grab each other. They would grab almost anything or, let's say, anything else, but not each other. And this was the first step to show us that there is a built-in mechanism inside the arms that prevents this unwanted grabbing of each other. I have this weird vision of two flailing arms in a dish. What was the next step to try and find out what's actually going on? We suspected this has to do something with the skin of the octopus. So we peeled the skin off one of the amputated arms in the dish. The first one that was not peeled did grab the flesh of the peeled arm. Then we took the skin and stretched it over a plastic disc and submitted this disc to the amputated arm, to the, the intact amputated arm, and it didn't grab it. So then we knew it's something inside the skin that prevents the suckers from using their reflex for attaching. So what do you think it is that's in the skin that repels the other arms of the octopus? 
we suspected it has to be something chemical, but we were not sure because it could have been also something the texture of the skin. And then what we did in the next experiments is to extract molecules out of the octopus skin in order to see if the extraction will also prevent the suckers from grabbing. We mixed those molecules inside gel and we coated plastic disc with this gel and we showed that amputated octopus arms indeed avoided grabbing this gel that contained molecules from the octopus skin. But when we did the same thing with with fish skin, we embedded molecules that were extracted in exactly the same way from fish skin, then the amputated octopus arm did grab the gel. So do you know what these mystery molecules are yet? I'm sorry to say that no. We don't know which molecules. This is our next step, to try and isolate the precise molecules that are involved uh, in this process. This is really fascinating because octopuses are just amazing animals. But why would you want to know how it doesn't tie itself in knots? Is there a a wider picture of knowledge that you're trying to build on? Other than being very interesting, there are also other implications of this. And we are also part of a project of the European Commission. This project is called Stiff Flop, and it aims at building a soft manipulator that will be in the shape of an octopus arm for medical purposes. And our part in this project is to provide the biological information of how the real octopus controls its arms. And the engineers are supposed to take ideas from the biology and implement them inside the controlling system of this soft manipulator. So maybe one day there could be an octopus surgeon inside you that won't tie itself in a knot. This project is aiming at building one arm. So it won't have other arms that it will have to avoid. But maybe this mechanism can be extended and this manipulator can be programmed to avoid manipulating obstacles on the way to the target. In the same way that the octopus is avoiding grabbing its own arms, this manipulator can use similar mechanisms to avoid, for example, let's say that it will be used for operations inside the intestines of a human then it will have to crawl inside to reach the target and we don't want it to stick to the walls of the intestines on on the way. Guy Levy from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And if you'd like to follow up on the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for all those news items on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. On to our main topic for this week now, and recently I was in Johannesburg, South Africa, which is home to the world's richest sources of gold and the world's deepest mines, which have been dug to recover it. But in the course of tunnelling up to four kilometres vertically down to recover the precious metal, the miners have also recently struck scientific gold with the discovery of populations of microorganisms thriving in extreme conditions. The temperatures down there are up to 70 degrees Celsius and the organisms survive by breaking down minerals and even living off the radiation given off by the uranium which is naturally present in the rock. So, scientists think these organisms might be useful to help us to extract hard-to-reach ore deposits and even to clean up the mine wastes which have been generated when the gold has been processed. I was lucky enough to be allowed to descend into Sibania Gold's Drefontine mine with one of the scientists doing this work. My name is Kay Kuloyo. I'm a researcher at the University of the Free State working to understand the limits of life in extreme environments. We know that we can find extreme life in places like deep sea vents and um, water sources. 
and also with that notion that there could be life on other planets. And where are the places that we feel we can have such conditions? It's in the center of the earth. And mining activities have provided that kind of opportunity for us to be able to access these places. What's been discovered already? In 2010, there was a paper that was uh, published about a worm that was found in in fissure water in one of the mines. This is one of the biggest discoveries to date because before that we've only found bacteria, so that gave an indication that there could be different uh, levels of life in extreme environments. When we say extreme environments, where were these organisms found growing? We're talking about in the deep mines where there's very little nutrients and the temperatures can go as high as 70 degrees Celsius. So to find complicated life growing at those extreme temperatures in very nutrient-poor environments says there's something pretty special about those sorts of organisms. Yes. It means that these organisms have genes that can help them make the kind of food they need. In the absence of sunlight and other sources, they can actually use the chemicals and the the minerals to make their own food and survive these conditions. How did they get here? Well, the theory is that uh, over millions of years ago, as the water gradually seeped down, these microorganisms came down with the water and they they became trapped here. And over time, they have been able to adapt to the conditions here. How do you know that's how it happened and that, for instance, they didn't just arrive with the last rainstorm? Okay, well, we'll do isotope analysis to determine the age of the water. What does that tell you? Well, that tells us that some of the water samples that we've taken here are millions of years ago, and sometimes even up to billions of years old. So if the water's that old, the organisms must have been in it for at least that long? Yes. You've come down here today, the idea is to actually to collect some samples. How are you doing that? Um, we have sterile falcon tubes with us that we always carry, and that's for grab samples. If we find a seepage in the rocks, we can take uh, some of the water samples, and then we culture in the lab and see what's in there. Because there's some water dripping down over here. Is this of interest? When we see water coming out of the rock surface like this, it's probably um, old water that's um, seeping out. What you see on the surface of the rocks, like the brown colour and the black colour, we think that's uh, microorganisms that are growing on the rock and also using the nutrients from the water to survive. So over time, they form a film on the rock of different colours, black or brown or white or pink, depending on the kind of nutrients that they're using. Do you have a lot of contamination from microorganisms brought here by us? Yes, because there's a lot of human activity, mining activity around here. Then most times we find uh, microorganisms that have come from uh, human activities, even sometimes common microorganisms like uh, E. coli. So we have to be really careful what we see is originally from the mine and what's from the surface. Should we grab a sample? Yes, why not? get across the railway tracks without <laughs> falling in the drainage ditch. So I'm going to open this sterile uh, popcorn tube that I have here. It's about 50 millilitres, and I'm going to scrape some of the water sample from, from the side and try and scrape some of the brown stuff. Even very little water samples can yield a lot of um, information about the microorganisms. And with my other tube. I'm going to scrape some of the black colour because we think that could be sulphate reducing bacteria. I don't know if you can smell a little bit of hydrogen sulphate. If you it does smell a bit sulphurous, yeah. And why do you think the sulphur is important? Because um, usually what you find in the gold mines is a lot of pyrates and, and sulphates as well. And, you know, that's also associated with the gold. So a lot of times we find sulfate-reducing bacteria. So the bacteria are using the sulfates as, the sulfate as, as a food source? Uh, yes. 
Because they're obviously not able to rely on energy coming from the sun. They have no, to get their food chemically. From what's around them, yes. You find some of them use the sulfates, some use the iron as well, and some use perhaps the nitrates. And also sometimes they use the radiation. Radiation? Yes, so some of the microorganisms can use the radiation as a source of energy. What will you now do with that? And this we take back to the lab and we do two types of analysis. One is to see if we can actually culture the microorganisms in there. Because to grow them? To grow them, yes. You have to recreate a gold mine in your we laboratory. We recreate the environment here. We're not always successful because these things um, do not follow the laws of the laboratory. So we go another step further to understand what they are made of using molecular biology techniques. All right, so as well as trying to grow them, you can then just interrogate them genetically because sometimes they may not grow, but their DNA will be there nonetheless, and that means you can find them. Exactly. So we use the DNA profile to reconstruct what's actually in there to understand all the bacteria or the orders of life that are in the samples. What are the implications of this discovery? Well, um, because of the conditions that we're finding some of these microorganisms in, we are able to use some of these microorganisms for bioremediation purposes. Cleaning things up. Cleaning things up, like acid mine drainage and things like that. So also we use them for green technologies, taking away more chemicals and using biological agents. Um, Also, for instance, microorganisms that we find in high-temperature areas, it means they are able to produce enzymes that are thermostable. As the vice president of the company has just pointed out, can you not discover a strain of organism that will eat gold and then poo it out in the right place to make their job a lot easier? Well, that's um, some of the research that we're doing. We have microorganisms that can bioaccumulate the gold, and then we can extract the gold from the microorganisms. So as one of them pointed out, that in places where they cannot really reach or are too dangerous, is it possible for us to use microorganisms? That's the next level that we're looking at. We do have some bench-scale um, applications of this where we've seen it happen, not just gold, but copper and some other minerals. So taking it to bigger levels and really showing that it can work is what we're looking at now. Kay Kaloyo from the University of the Free State at Bloemfontein, South Africa. Thank you also to Sibanya Gold's James Wellstead and his colleagues who allowed me the privileged access to get into their mine at Driefontein. We'll also have a programme episode actually coming up soon about the science of gold mining and I recorded that while I was down there too. We think that this qualifies us as holders of the world's deepest podcast, but what do you think? If you've got any questions or comments or feedback for us here at The Naked Scientist, you can get in touch by writing to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. We've just heard how microorganisms might hold the key to the future of precious and rare metal recovery and also to detoxify the chemicals that can leach from deposits of mine tailings or as they're more commonly known, slag heaps. Birmingham University's Professor Lynn McCaskey also works on microbes that can do this. She's recently been to Cape Town and also to Canada. Now, welcome to the show, Lynn. Tell me, why are these mine tailings or slag heaps such a threat to our environment? They're a big threat because unless the area is contained very well, the toxic elements, the metals and other things can actually migrate away from the source and through the environment and have an environmental impact. So there's a lot of scope for environmental damage. And what kinds of metals, what sorts of contaminants are we talking about and why are they damaging in the environment? Well, the main metal of interest that's being mined, obviously, whether that's copper, nickel, uranium, but other elements that are there as well, which may not be immediately of interest, 
can also have toxic effects on the ecosphere, plant life, animal life. And one example of this is where historically people were mining for uranium and they ignored another set of elements which were often present called rare earth elements. Now that they in themselves are not too toxic, not as toxic as some, uh, but they're now becoming quite valuable. So the interest is refocusing on getting as much benefit as possible from, from the slag heaps. Basically, you've got all these rare earth metals sitting in slag heaps. Why are they so useful? Why do people want to get them out? They're absolutely key to 21st century technologies. They're used in magnets, electronics, phosphor screens, LEDs, TV screens. And a lot of the time, they're not replaceable by anything else. And so as technology is moving forward, we're coming to rely on these elements. And the problem is not that they're rare. Um, they're actually very common. It's just very, very difficult to get them out. And commercial processing is um, something like 100 different steps. It's very tricky. It's very expensive. It's been developed in China mainly. And so China largely controls the global supply of these elements. And so how are you trying to get these rare earth minerals out of the slag heaps? As we heard on the the piece from from Africa, some bacteria can actually take up minerals, um, take up elements. Um, Some will take up gold, some will take up copper, and some will actually take up rare earths. But of course, the tricky part is is choosing your bacteria so that um, effectively you can put them into different pots. You don't want a complete mixture because then you've got the problem of separating them. So I think the future lies in, in getting separation, getting bacteria to take some and not others. And so where are you at the moment with your research? I mean, do you have some, some bugs in the lab that can actually you know, eat specific uh, metals and minerals? We do have some bugs already, um, but we're just starting to embark upon looking at natural deposits, finding out what bugs are in there. And this story about um, bugs being found at 70 degrees way below ground is so interesting, so exciting, because it's opening up a whole new area of science that hasn't been explored yet. And do you think that there are going to be just naturally occurring bacteria that could be useful for this? Or would you look towards genetically engineering specific capabilities into bacteria? Nature is very clever. Um, Given millions of years, things evolve. Quite often, people will um, genetically engineer a microbe and then find something else that's engineered itself in the environment. And obviously, there's a lot of resistance still to releasing genetically modified microbes. So by and large, we tend to try for natural uh, microbes where we can. What kind of benefits do you think there could be? I mean, if you could actually successfully get these rare earth metals out. Well, the environmental benefits are obviously strong, but these elements are so, so valuable and the price is going up. Everybody thinks of gold and platinum as precious metals, but actually um, we're not short of gold and platinum. There's plenty of that, but we don't yet have the technology to to harvest rare earths from the environment in an efficient um, way that's cost effective. So uh, potentially there's there's a lot of um, economic benefit to be gained. And in fact, um, in parts of Canada, they've got huge areas of tailings ponds where they've taken out the uranium uh, for the nuclear industry and they're left with huge tailing ponds full of these rare earths. And at the moment, they're seeking exploitation licenses to go back to these historic deposits. I was going to say, it sounds like they're sitting on a gold mine, but obviously it's a a, a rare earth mine. And in terms of just getting the the bugs kind of in and out, would you just be taking bacteria out and purifying them or isolating bacteria, bunging them in there, making them grow and then taking them back out again? 
Well, it's uh, it's a very large problem. Obviously, it's not just a, a small a small hole. It's a very very big hole. So um, it's, it's a lot of technology to be developed um, to try to make it a manageable size. And part of the bottleneck is it's quite difficult to do pilot plants because um, you've got to construct a smaller version to try out. And also the actual composition of the material um, differs from mine to mine. And what kind of timescale, briefly, are we talking about here that you could maybe start getting metals out? What would you hope for? We would hope to start getting the metals out and proving the technology in principle within two to three years. But obviously, um, getting it up to plant scale will be much longer than that, somewhere between five and ten probably. And don't forget also that uh, you have to convince um, the wider um, public and governments that you're not going to end up making a larger mess than you started with. Always a point with cleaning up. Thank you very much. That's uh, Lynn McCaskey from Birmingham University. Thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or email us. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. This week, we've been talking about bioremediation, how bacteria can be used to clean up environmental damage in soils and also mining waste. But can the same techniques be used in the ocean? Joel Koska is from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and he investigates how microorganisms have played a role in clearing up the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010. In the past, the accidental release of oil into the environment largely occurred by tankers running aground and breaking up into shallow water. But in recent times, oil tankers have become much better designed. And so even if a tanker runs aground, there's less of a chance for that ship to break apart and release oil into the environment. So more and more what we're seeing is oil is released from pipes associated with these floating oil rigs, like the Deepwater Horizon rig in the Gulf of Mexico, that drill through miles of seawater and miles of ocean floor. And what we say in our field now is that it's not a matter of whether we will have another major oil spill, it's a matter of when. And when the disaster happened with Deepwater Horizon, how much oil was actually being lost or discharged into the Gulf of Mexico? The total oil released was about 5 million barrels of liquid oil, and one-third again as much natural gas was released. So we're talking about over 6 million barrels of oil equivalents were released into the ocean. Now, you work on microbes and how they are affected and how they affect oil and water. So when you go and look at a sample of water from the Gulf of Mexico, are the ocean waters richer in bacteria there that will naturally be able to degrade oils? Certainly. So one of the unique aspects of the Gulf of Mexico is, though it's vast, it still is a relatively small ocean basin into which a lot of oil is deposited from natural oil seeps. And so if you take samples with a submarine or another device around where that oil is seeping out, you will indeed see a concentration of microbes that have evolved to take up and eat that oil. Bacteria that have evolved to eat oil carry out what's called a respiration process. They breathe oxygen and burn the carbon that's present in the oil. So oil is an excellent food source for microorganisms. And so the logical question for me to ask is, given that those bugs are there, can you recover them, enrich them, 
and then use them if there is another oil disaster to help degrade the slicks in some way? Uh, boy, I wish that was the case, that it would be that simple. There's really no credible evidence that indicates any organism that we can grow in the lab and add into the environment that would do a better job of degrading oil hydrocarbons than the indigenous or native communities. And the reason for that is that the microbial communities that are present naturally in seawater or at the seafloor are adapted better to those environmental conditions that are there than anything that we can add. What are these microorganisms? What sorts of bacteria are they? Some of the best known organisms that we've studied so far are members of what we call the gamma proteobacteria. And they're, just from their names, you can tell that they're good at breaking up oil. For example, alcanivorax. And it's named alcanivorax because it eats alkanes. Another organism would be called uh, Marinobacter hydrocarbonoclasticus. And again, an organism that breaks apart hydrocarbons. Now, in a human context, if I had an unsettled stomach or I'd had a course of antibiotics which had wiped out the bugs that naturally live inside me and helped me break down my dinner, I could supplement myself with some bugs or eat certain foods which would encourage certain microorganisms to increase in number. Now, can we do the same thing in the ocean? Could we, knowing that we've got an oil pollution problem, could we help to bioremediate by fertilising the right sorts of bugs? in order to encourage them to break down the nasty stuff faster? That's a good question. So in the response to the Exxon Valdez uh, spill, the largest response that was undertaken was to fertilize beaches that were impacted by oil. Certainly, it was observed that the oil was degraded faster than it would have been if the beach had not been fertilized. But it remains controversial as to whether that remediation strategy was really effective because the oil probably would have broken down naturally without fertilization. And whenever you add nutrients to the environment, you can potentially cause harmful algal blooms. So what would you say the bottom line is with respect to the use of microbes in cleaning up oil spills? I would say that the natural microbial communities can do just fine in remediating oil from oil spills through natural attenuation. It's a supply and demand issue. As long as the release of oil into the Gulf of Mexico is slow enough, natural microbial communities can keep up and degrade any oil that's released into the environment. It's only when you have a huge amount of oil released in a short period of time the microbes can't keep up. But eventually that oil will be degraded naturally. And it actually occurs fairly rapidly in the presence of oxygen and in the presence of sufficient nutrients. Joel Koska from the Georgia Institute of Technology. So we've heard how bacteria can play a role in environmental cleanups, but what about nature's so-called recyclers, fungi? Someone who's trying to answer this question is Jeff Gadd from the University of Dundee. We've uh, been working uh, on various systems and we've been particularly interested in, in lead and uranium in, in some separate studies. And in fact, we found that in both cases, fungi are capable of mediating uh, the formation of lead-containing minerals or uranium-containing minerals. They're actually some kinds of uh, phosphates. And in fact, it was very interesting with the, uh, the lead because the mineral formed was a lead phosphate called paramorphite. Now, this is a a mineral, and it's actually the most stable lead mineral that's found in the Earth's crust and was commonly advocated as a remediation technique for lead-contaminated land. Phosphate sources such as uh, apatite or bone meal 
would be added and this would immobilize the phosphate. But, you know, we've shown that the uh, actually the organisms themselves can actually form the pyromorphite in the soil. And it could be, you know, just a case of uh, encouraging the fungal populations to grow up a bit to do this. So basically lock it away in a form that it can't leach out and contaminate the wider environment. Well, that's the idea. And, uh, and, and it's actually the same with, with uranium. They made a uranium phosphate mineral. And funnily enough, the uranium phosphate mineral was actually more stable than the depleted uranium that was being attacked by the organism. And so this might be one good approach where the, the metals are locked up in an insoluble form. And then hopefully, you know, they don't get leached out and find their way into water or, or get taken up by plants and, and the like. And where are you looking for these wonderful metal converting fungi in the world? <laughs> well, funnily enough, you can really get organisms everywhere that can do, do these kind of tricks. But, but I will say that we did find some special fungi over in old lead polluted mine sites in the southwest of Scotland, actually near a place called Lead Hills. We found that some of the organisms isolated from there were the ones that had this capacity to transform lead into this mineral. So in some cases, there might be a connection between some kind of special organisms and a kind of polluted location where they've adapted or they've been selected because of this property that can also help them by removing the lead toxicity. And thinking about how you might try and take these these fungi that you found, say, in Scotland and take them to other sites that are contaminated, would your idea be that you'd kind of grow them up in the lab and then ship them out? Or are there other ways that you could maybe encourage the naturally occurring fungi there already? Addition of organisms is one possibility, although that's often done for some kind of organic breakdown. But in actual fact, it's best to use the indigenous populations, perhaps by encouraging them that. Some of these things are widely found uh, properties and, and many species. In fact, just addition of fertilizer, basically, just the same way as you might put manure on your garden to encourage plants to grow. The same approach, providing carbon and nitrogen to enable fungal populations to grow, might work. And in fact, this has been shown over in the US some time ago with, with cases of selenium pollution, where the, the organisms were encouraged to grow by addition of such materials and remove the selenium pollution. So you're basically just giving Mother Nature a little kind of a nudge in the right direction. Exactly. So do you feel that the the future is fungal or do you think we're just going to have to use as many different cleanup methods as possible to try and, and decontaminate our environment? I think there's possibilities in all contexts. I mean, bacteria have a fantastic metabolic capability and so they're applicable to a whole kind of situations. Fungi are perhaps a bit more limited in the kinds of environmental places they can be, but there's still a wide range of possibilities. And of course, you know, we mustn't forget that in a polluted site, especially polluted soil, both bacteria and fungi are, are together. And in fact, it's been shown that both bacteria and fungi have to work together to treat some of the, the more complex aromatic organic pollutants, for example. So everything is possible. Thanks very much. That's Jeff Gad from the University of Dundee. And it's time to take a look at our question of the week. Hannah Critchlow. This week, we try to get our throbbing heads in gear to answer this. My name is Suzanne and I live in Runcorn, Cheshire. I wanted to ask a question about common over-the-counter painkillers such as ibuprofen, paracetamol and aspirin. We've all taken them for pain relief, but I wanted to know, does each drug achieve this pain relief in a different way within the body? And are certain painkillers more effective to combat different types of pain? So what's the difference between paracetamol, aspirin and ibuprofen? Peter McNaughton from King's College London. Well, these three are all examples of a class of painkillers which are known as NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They all are thought to work in basically the same way, 
which is that they inhibit an enzyme called cyclooxygenase, which produces prostaglandin E2. Now, prostaglandin E2, when it's produced in the periphery, for instance, in response to spraining your ankle, causes inflammation and pain. When it's produced in the central nervous system, for instance, in response to a bacterial infection or something, then it causes an elevated temperature and also commonly headache. So inhibiting PGE2 has an anti-inflammatory action in the periphery and also antipyretic, in other words, lowers the temperature in the central nervous system. Now, aspirin and ibuprofen both work as anti-inflammatories, so they will be good for a sprained ankle, and they also lower a temperature and deal with headache. Paracetamol, for reasons that are not entirely understood, works mainly in the central nervous system, so it's a very good antipyretic. It also is a good painkiller, because a lot of pain is what's uh, perceived centrally, But it isn't a very good anti-inflammatory, so it won't cause uh, the swelling of a sprained ankle to go down. Paracetamol is the safest of these drugs. Aspirin and ibuprofen both have effects on the stomach. So that, in a nutshell, is the difference between the three of them. Thanks, Peter. So paracetamol, aspirin and ibuprofen all decrease the amount of prostaglandin E2, but in different places. Moving towards matter, Kevin wrote in with this. As I understand it, physicists have been trying to figure out why the universe is primarily made of matter as opposed to antimatter. What evidence is there that the universe is primarily made of matter? How would we be able to tell if roughly half the galaxies out there were primarily antimatter? So, is there an antimatter planet out there? Could we see it, even if there was? And does it matter anyway? And if you have any ideas to the answer to that, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, of course, facebook.com slash thenakedscientist, or you can get in touch with us at Twitter, at Naked Scientists. That is it for this week. Many thanks to our guests, Kay Coloyo, Lynn McCaskey, Joel Koska, and Jeff Gadd. Thank you to Kat Arney, and also thank you to Kate Lamble for production. Join us next week when we'll be discussing ethical issues related to medicine, including how we decide who has access to what drugs and what genetic testing could mean for your family. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name is Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.